Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Schools, more than any other public institution, are tasked with developing Americans' civic knowledge, skills, and dispositions. Research indicates that schools that make a concerted effort to increase civic participation can, in fact, do so. That's a quote from the new Brown Center Report on American Education, an annual analysis of the state of American education. This year's edition reports on the state not only of reading and math, but also on civics education. Here to talk about the report's findings is Brown Center on Education Policy Director Michael Hansen. He holds the Herman and George R. Brown Chair and is also a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies. He's co-author, along with Elizabeth Levesque, John Vallant, and Diana Quintero of this year's report. Also on today's show, in a new Metro Lens segment, Joseph Perilla and Max Boucher discuss the new Global Metro Monitor, a review of the 300 largest metropolitan economies in the world that define the modern global economy. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Mike, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you for having me, Fred. So I wanted to point out, before we really dived into the Brown Center report, so you're the director of the Brown Center, and I did a little research. The Brown Center, as far as I can tell, is the oldest continually operating policy center at the Brookings Institution. It was founded, I think, in 1992. That's right. But I didn't know that it was the oldest one. So that's a pleasant surprise to hear. So can you start with a broad introduction to our listeners about what the Brown Center Report on American Education is? So this Brown Center Report has been a mostly annual report. There's been a couple years here and there that we have missed, but that has been an ongoing series where we do a deep dive on relevant, current, timely topics in American schools. And it's been published continuously with occasional gaps for about 20 years. Prior reports were written by the former center director, Tom Loveless. However, he has recently retired, and this is the first report that the new Brown Center staff have written after his retirement. I've had Tom on this program before, and it's always a fascinating conversation with him and also Anything to do with education policy is of great interest to our listeners. So thank you again for coming on the show to talk about the the report. We'll be talking a lot in this conversation about what are called NAEP scores, N-A-E-P. What is NAEP? The NAEP is the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It is a biannual test administration in English, language, arts, and math. The NAEP also includes other subjects, including, for example, arts or civics, or sciences, but these other subjects are tested at less frequent intervals. The NAEP started in the 1970s, and what it does is it provides a national snapshot of American progress, and they also have state-level samples so that we can see how each state is doing in comparison to other states. I've heard it described as the nation's report card. Yes, that's the well-known nickname. So this year's Brown Center report features an emphasis on civics education, which is something new in the series of reports. Why did y'all add the focus on civics education? Well, in contemplating the theme of schools and policy over the past year or so, we felt that a focus on civics and social studies was very appropriate. Over the past year, we've seen schools engaged in politics, 
more so than we have in many years. So this includes things like the very political confirmation and very visible confirmation of Secretary DeVos, which got a lot of backlash. We also have seen the response to the Parkland, Florida shooting and the March for Our Lives. We have seen teachers striking across the country. And so it just felt like this is a very timely topic to talk about. And also, of course, we have transitioned with this in recent years from a system that has been primarily focusing the No Child Left Behind Act that has primarily focused on math and reading. And now we have sort of a under the Every Student Succeeds Act, a bit of a new option to focus and broaden the scope of what students are learning in schools. Well, I want to outline the three general categories of the report. The Brown Center Report always has three big sections that cover different topics. So I'll just summarize them real quick because it'll kind of guide our conversation henceforth. First section is about trends in student performance on the NAEP assessments in math, reading, and civics. Part two is an inventory of state policies on civics education. And then part three is a focus on the demographics and other characteristics of social studies teachers. So let's talk about that first part. What are your top-level findings about the NAEP assessments for these subject areas? For the NAEP assessments, primarily we are looking at just an update of the recent NAEP results that were released earlier this spring. In our reporting, we primarily are emphasizing the continued decline and achievement gaps that we see based on race and ethnicity. This has been an ongoing trend for 20-plus years, and given that this assessment of NAEP is a bit of a demarcation line, sort of uh, transitioning from the No Child Left Behind era to the Every Student Succeeds Act. We felt like it was appropriate to have that focus on gaps and progress on gaps, seeing that that was one of the trademarks of the No Child Left Behind era. And we do see continued progress on narrowing those gaps, which is very encouraging. However, the income-based gaps for student achievement have actually been largely stagnant during the last two years. And so that's quite inconsistent with the trend that we're seeing on racial and ethnicity gaps. Now, you've referenced the No Child Left Behind Act, which governed federal policy and education from, I believe, 2002? That's right. Until just last year when it was replaced by the Every Student Succeeds Act. And then you've also mentioned that it could open up more attention to civics education. How does that work? Why is that in the ESSA over the NCLB? Sure. And just to clarify, the new ESSA law was passed in 2015, but it's only been in recent years that it's begun to actually be implemented and we've seen new state accountability systems. So let me just briefly offer a little bit of background there. Under the old NCLB guidelines, states were required to formulate their accountability policies to hold schools accountable. And under these accountability rules, they were responsible for that report percent proficiency rates for math and reading for their students. They also had to break it out by subgroup, which offered a new level of transparency in reporting that we hadn't seen prior to the passage of NCLB. However, NCLB was also criticized for being too idealistic with its aspirational goal of 100% proficiency by the year 2014. Also, it was criticized for being overemphasizing on test results and standardized tests in particular. And so under ESSA, which has been in place since 2015, there has been an opening for other areas. So states are required to do new accountability policies for their schools, but they require some other measure to see how students are doing in those schools. 
And that could be a measure of, say, for example, school climate. It could be student absences. We've seen several states do that. But it's just another measure to try to open. So it's no longer an exclusive focus on math and reading on standardized tests, but this opens up other things that may be important for schools. And arguably, this is an opening for other areas. Well, the Brown Center Report has a lot of fascinating and important data on the NAEP scores for reading, math, and civics in Section 1. Let's move on to Section 2, which is more of a focus on uh, what states are doing in terms of civics education. Can you talk about kind of the broad outlines of what y'all are putting out there in the Section 2? Sure. So there is a broad consensus among scholars in civics and social studies that good civics education requires both factual understanding of democratic institutions and checks and balances, those kinds of things, but also it requires an opportunity to practice and experience democratic principles in action. And so this has been a growing consensus within the scholarly education community for the last decade or so. However, we wanted to investigate whether these policies have been picked up by states. And so the first part of this section of the report is reporting about what we found and how these different states have put policies in place that are more supportive of those elements of a high-quality civics education. So broadly speaking, do you think most states are fulfilling the objectives of good civics education? Are there some states that are lagging behind? I would say this is uh, highly variable, is what we found. Some states do appear to be taking it quite seriously, others less so. I would say that some commonalities that we see is virtually all states require some level of civics coursework, though actually not all states did, which we are surprised at. Most states also have an emphasis on current affairs and discussing things that they see in the media, for example. However, there are fewer states where we see requirements for simulations or experiential learning opportunities, which have been deemed as so important for civics education and really internalizing the lessons of democratic institutions. I know a really important factor in studying nearly any phenomenon is to disaggregate by race, by location, by income. I know you all do that in the report. So what race and income gaps did you detect in the state of civics education? So at least based on the survey data that we have, which is based on the reported practices of students in the classroom, so for example, how frequently they are engaging in classroom debates about some controversial topic or how frequently they are reading something from newspapers, et cetera. And there, at least based on these practices, we did not really see any strong gaps emerging by race or income. And so to us, that suggests that perhaps maybe the differences that we are seeing, because we do see gaps in actual assessment results. And so it suggests to us that perhaps there is a difference in the quality of the experiences that these students are getting by race or income. Also, perhaps it may point to other differences in out-of-school settings that some students may be more exposed to voting with their parents, for example. Here are Metropolitan Policy Program researchers Joseph Perilla and Max Boucher with the Global Metro Monitor. Hello, I'm Joseph Perilla. 
And I'm Max Boucher. And together we conduct research at the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. Over the past several years, major political events, like the election of Donald Trump and Britain's prospective departure from the European Union, have been linked to the diverging economic fortunes between large cities and everywhere else. The argument goes something like this. Economic growth is increasingly concentrating in large cities to the detriment of mid-sized cities, smaller towns, and rural areas, and that that economic discontent is manifesting itself in national politics. As a result, global and national leaders, once only concerned with the pace of national economic growth, are increasingly paying attention to where that growth is occurring at the local level. Our recently released Global Metro Monitor, which we co-authored with Sifan Liu and Nadera Kabani, provides a unique perspective on these growth patterns. Specifically, the role of the world's 300 largest cities in global economic growth. Why these places? Well, for starters, these 300 metro areas, which stretch across 66 countries and five continents, account for about one quarter of the world's population and nearly half its GDP. So they are incredibly important in terms of economic opportunity. On top of that, these large metro areas are accounting for disproportionate amounts of recent economic growth. Between 2014 and 2016, these 300 cities generated two-thirds of global growth. Large cities as a cohort have grown faster than the world over the past couple of years, providing some confirmation of the split between big cities and the rest of the world. So this is the global perspective of larger cities versus other areas, but how does this dynamic play out in different parts of the world? Are big cities pulling away everywhere? To answer this question, we look at a longer time horizon, specifically 2000 to 2016, and look at economic performance across two metrics to compare large metro areas to the rest of their broader regions, which would include mid-sized cities, smaller towns, and rural areas. So on the first metric, we find that, in fact, large metro areas are adding jobs at a faster pace than their surrounding hinterlands, and this is occurring in nearly every world region. The gaps are most significant in China, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and the Middle East and Africa. In Western Europe and North America, where the two political events occurred that I mentioned earlier, large metro areas actually tracked their surrounding regions closely in the lead-up to the financial crisis, but then diverged in the post-recession period. But when we look at economic performance on a second indicator, GDP per capita growth, which we use as a proxy for average income, The trends look different. Since 2000, GDP per capita growth in large metro areas has either trailed or tracked their surrounding nations and regions. There are two exceptions to this, Western Europe and China, and the latter of which, China, is an extraordinary outlier on both metrics. Large Chinese cities experience four times greater GDP per capita growth than the rest of the country. And this is one reason why one-third of the 300 largest metro areas in the world are now in China. These findings provide nuance to the divergence between large cities and everywhere else. That noted, large cities still have much higher average GDP per capita than the surrounding regions, an indicator that suggests standards of living remain higher. In Western Europe and the United States, GDP per capita is roughly 40% higher in large metro areas. 
that gap is not insignificant, but it pales in comparison to a place like China, where GDP per capita in large cities is nearly 500% higher than in the hinterlands. Viewed one way, these differences represent the power of cities to generate opportunity and wealth. Viewed another way, they represent inequities within nations that are unsustainable in time. Either way, these subnational dynamics are an important component to understanding global and national economies and politics. More about these dynamics and how your metro area ranks in our Economic Performance Index can be found in our report at brookings.edu slash metro. You can find the 2018 Global Metro Monitor and past editions on our website at brookings.edu slash metro. One thing that's really great about this report is that it's so practical. I mean, people can take this report to their school board, to their state school board, and say, look, here are the 10 proven practices for civics education. Here's the 50 state-by-state inventory Mm -hmm. of what states are doing. So it's really deep dive into the state of civics education. Why don't we move on to the third section, which I think is really fascinating, and that's a focus on social studies teachers. Mm -hmm. You note that in the report, social studies, generally not teachers, the social studies as a topic has a lower status compared to math, English, and reading in federal policy, at least under the No Child Left Behind Act. How does that affect teaching? Well, it's not just under the No Child Left Behind Act, but it's also under ESSA as well, that really the only mentions of social studies and civics in federal law, at least those major pieces of federal law, are discussions of basically teacher training programs in Title II. So it's sort of a small buried section. There's not a whole lot of emphasis on it. And how does this affect teaching? We have seen several studies that document ways that schools are spending less time on non-tested subjects like social studies or, for example, health. I mean, social studies isn't the only subject that may be getting sidelined here. But since the introduction of No Child Left Behind, several subjects have gotten less attention and less airtime within classrooms and schools, and math and reading are taking a little bit more of that airtime. In most cases, it's not hugely dramatic shift, so it's not that we are removing civics entirely or social studies entirely from our curricula, but they certainly have a smaller emphasis. Also, there is some evidence that this has affected individual teachers' practices. If they have less time to focus on social studies in the classroom, then they tend to be more focused or they report being more focused on learning facts, on trying to get the kids to have a basic understanding of what's going on, but perhaps it does sacrifice the simulations or other kind of experiential learning that we talk about in that second section that is so important to a high-quality civics education. Why did you decide to take this analysis and focus on social studies teachers themselves? I study teachers in general. That's my area of specialty. And one thing that I realized is that most of the evidence that we have about teachers is really based on either large representative samples of all teachers in general, or it tends to be focused on teachers in specific high-demand subjects, so math, reading, and science. And so we don't actually know a lot about social studies teachers in particular and 
really the purpose of this section was to talk about whether they actually are different or are there any characteristics that make them unique. Also, given the fact that they're not in an accountability grade, maybe they do differ in some very important ways. And that's what we wanted to explore. So how are social studies teachers the same or different than the average teacher of these other subjects? Well, we saw quite a few differences that were really surprising, but let me just describe a couple. Number one is that they are disproportionately male, and perhaps part of that is based on interest. We thought that perhaps maybe it's more males going into social studies and therefore becoming social studies teachers, but it turns out there are actually more males going into math, but we don't see that many math teachers. In fact, the social studies subject is somewhat unique in that the teaching workforce for social studies is actually more male than the share of undergraduates that are majoring in social studies. Whereas if you compare that to science, math, and reading, English language arts, all of those subjects have a disproportionately more female presence in the teaching profession than they do among graduates. So it's kind of an interesting shift and it actually makes us wonder why more males are going into social studies to teach whereas more females are going into these other subjects to teach. So it's not the pipeline. It's something else that's causing that. It appears to be some other kind of selection process. And part of this sort of inquiry led us to one of the other interesting findings that we report on, which is that social studies teachers are disproportionately likely to take on other responsibilities at their schools. And in particular, they're much more likely to coach. And so it seems like coaching may be a real motivator to getting social studies teachers into the classroom. Are there other ways in which social studies teachers are more like their counterparts in these other fields? They were very similar in their levels of experience. Mm -hmm. They are slightly more likely to be trained through a traditional teacher training program, but there are a lot of similarities with they report working a similar number of hours. So there are a lot of similarities that they have with other subject teachers. And so it's not clear that they necessarily entirely stand out or have a very different kind of working experience. But it does seem that the one way that their working experience is different is that they are taking on these additional responsibilities, at least at higher rates, than these other teachers are. I found the chart in your report that has all these different characteristics for teachers in social studies, English language arts, math, and natural sciences. There's a lot of amazing data here. So just to underscore what you're saying about involvement in extracurricular activities, I believe the figure is for secondary school teachers who are in social studies, 70% are involved in extracurricular student activities. 58% of English language arts are involved that way. 53% of math and 63% of natural sciences teachers are involved in extracurricular student activities. So that is quite a stark difference there. Yeah, and one of the things that we further analyzed on this point is whether states that took high-quality education more seriously, at least the way we're measuring it using that analysis in Section 2 of the report, whether their responsibilities in schools, whether they were different across these different settings, we actually found a bit of a relationship there as well. So it appears that states where they do have more high-quality civics education policies in place, these teachers are significantly less likely to report some of these extra activities that they're being engaged in. So maybe there's a bit of a, of a theory that we might think of here that these non-accountability subject teachers, like social studies teachers, that they are being tasked with sort of various school responsibilities 
And because math and reading, like they're the sort of the chosen players, they're the ones that we're really focused on. And so those responsibilities tend to fall on the shoulders of social studies teachers. However, if the state is serious about social studies, then maybe they have similar assignments, more like the A players, if you will. But you mentioned elsewhere in the report that the amount of teaching time devoted to social studies, to civics education, in terms of hours, seems to have dropped a little bit relative to reading and math. It has dropped a little bit, yes. Is that somehow related to these teachers, social studies teachers, are more likely to have other responsibilities outside of their social studies classroom in their school setting? Now, we're not entirely sure of the causal direction of this, but there certainly is a bit of a relationship that is showing up, and these social studies teachers are taking on more of these responsibilities. And in fact, in surveys of social studies teachers, they have reported that taking on too many responsibilities outside of their subject specialty has been something that has kept them from providing a more rich experience for their students. So to kind of wrap up with the Brown Center report with its focus on civics education, what's your and your colleagues' bottom line of the state of civics education in America? So the bottom line here was to offer a snapshot of how we're doing. And as for how we are doing, we actually aren't doing as bad on civics as we suspected that we might be, given the focus on math and reading and accountability subjects, we suspected that maybe things were getting a lot worse there. But we didn't find that to be the case. But we did find a lot of variation across states. And we did find that, of course, some states are doing better. We also see that these social studies teachers are unique in their own different ways. And it raises some important questions about how we are drawing social studies teachers into the classroom and what we're hiring them for. Are we primarily hiring them to do all these other things? And social studies is just sort of the reason to get them in and put them in the classroom. And if so, does that offer some insights about perhaps their quality of teaching in the classroom? And that I don't have evidence of, but that sort of is a next question to look at. Speaking of next questions, Mike, looking ahead, what other kinds of research can we expect to see from you and your colleagues in the Brown Center? So I have an ongoing focus on teacher diversity in America's schools. And so racial diversity is very much underrepresented among the teacher workforce. And we've been doing an ongoing series on that, looking at a number of issues, which has been very fruitful, and we will continue to do that. And my colleague, John Vallant, he's also just recently got some new projects looking at school choice and students' access to transportation and getting them to different schools and how transportation issues interact with school choice questions. And then, of course, my colleague Elizabeth, she's been looking at questions of state regulation, how different interest groups are weighing in to the regulatory process. Okay. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to share your expertise in the Brown Center Report with us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you, Fred. You can find this year's and all of the previous Brown Center reports on American education on our website at brookings.edu slash bcr. My thanks to audio engineer Gaston Ribeiro with assistance from Mark Holscher. To producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. To Bill Finan, who does the book interviews. And to Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahan for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez for guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. 
Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. 